As you're being seated, if you would please take out your copies of God's Word and follow along with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. If you'd like to follow along in the Pew Bible, that's page 1160. We will be in verses 11 through 22 today as we tackle this next section of this wonderful letter. Listen carefully, because this is God's word. I'm going to back up to verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens. But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you, are all, you, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's go to our God and ask his blessing on our message today. Oh, Jesus, we do thank you for this passage. A passage that brings a difference to our lives, not just in how we relate to you, but in how we relate to each other. Lord, I pray that this would sink deeply into our hearts as we hear what you have to say to us today. Oh, we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. It is said that we are living in very divided times. This is it's being said almost as much as that we're living in unprecedented times or unprecedented dividing times, just to stack on as much terror as we can. But it is true that there are fundamental divides in not only our culture, but in the world. There are disagreements on foundational things, like what is the best form of governance? What does it mean to have a gender? What is marriage? 
Is the earth round or flat? There are all of these ways in which we seem to be disagreeing about the very fundamentals of our world. And we keep seeming to try to fix them by the superficials of this world. It's like, well, if we could just be united at the ballot box, then we could find some real peace in our world. Or if we could just agree on what a gender is, then maybe we would be able to find peace once more. Or perhaps we can look back into a time where we thought the world was united together. It's like, well, if we could go back to some mystical decade, some years past in which all things were as they should be. But we've been divided for as long as there has been more than one person in the world. And it's something that even Paul mentions here. That he hints that there was a great division. But the difference between the Jew the rest of the world, the Jew and the Gentile. But here, we see because of the work of Christ, even this profound difference between two people, a difference made by God, can be united in the gospel. And that's what we're going to look at today. So we're going to find two takeaways, or two points that you see in your uh, bulletin insert on the back of the prayer guide. It says that we find real unity only in Christ. We find real unity only in Christ. And the second point is that true unity is for God's purposes. True unity is for God's purposes. So we are going to find that out as we look into our passage today. As a quick reminder of where we are in our context, we were told last week in the previous chapter, in the earlier part of chapter 2, that we are desperate sinners. Thankfully, we're being saved by the glorious and gracious God as we see in chapter 1. And we, we saw how he worked this out in our salvation, that it was by grace and through faith. This is a pure act of God. As we saw in our Sunday school lesson last week, Dr. Godfrey was talking, he had mentioned about the book of life that was written, all the names that were written down that Jesus had saved. And he had made a contrast from that, is that this is not the book of works and all the good things that you've recorded. That's not it. It's the names that Jesus has saved. It has nothing to do with whether or not we were able to work ourselves to heaven, because we can't. It is by grace. But the gospel unites more than just man to God and reconciles in the vertical, but also reconciles in the horizontal. And that's what we're seeing here. And Paul calls to remembrance to the Ephesian church, which is made of a, a mixture of Jews and Gentiles together. And he speaks to the Gentiles specifically, because they have yet one more dimension to be grateful for. But he begins and kind of loses his train of thought to reference something. Paul does this occasionally. He says, therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles, and then he kind of goes on with what it means to be Gentiles and Jew. We'll get to that in a second. And then he picks back up in verse 12 and says, remember that at that time you were separated from Christ. Talks about this separation between, Jew, uh, between the Gentiles and God. See, when God had made a covenant with people, he made it with Abraham and with his seed, the people of Israel. The sacrifices were for them. The promises for a land were for them. And it wasn't made for the Gentiles. Now, that doesn't mean that the Gentiles couldn't approach God. They could. As we saw in other passages in the Old Testament, Rahab is one poignant example. She was a prostitute from Jericho. 
that she was brought in to be with the covenant people, that she could submit to what it was for to, to enter into the covenant of God. She had to become a Jew, had to do the things that the Jews did, wash the way that they washed, go to the temples that they went to, wore the clothes the way that they wore them. And one in particular marker of that was circumcision. That's what Paul references here in verse 11. This, for, for, for male members of the Jewish community, circumcision was the mark of the covenant, a baptism, so to speak. It was, it was showing that they were part of the covenant and the promises that God had made. And those that wanted to convert into Judaism had to go through the same rite of circumcision, the, the removal of that foreskin. But instead of this being a sign to the nations of, of, that should be humbling to the people, saying it's like, wow, the Lord has, it was by grace in the Old Testament too that they were chosen to have this covenant. And instead of this being a humbling thing, it became an exalting thing. The Jews looked at this and looked down at the Gentiles, and they had this slur of the uncircumcised. And the Gentiles returned the favor by calling the Jews the circumcised and used this thing as a means of slurring back and forth between one another. So there is this animosity that has existed between the Jews and the Gentiles over something that there shouldn't have been animosity about. This doesn't mean that the circumcision or that God's laws in the Old Testament were bad. Far from it. But it's just human nature is so twisted and sinful that we'll take anything good and turn it into an occasion for sin. The Ten Commandments are good commandments. But now they're an occasion for us to disobey. And that's what he's making reference to here. As we see this sniping back and forth between the Jews and the Gentiles. But now he's saying, now it's different. Christ makes all the difference. As we see now, those that were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, and have no hope and without God of the world. But now they've been brought near. In Jesus Christ, those that were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Paul is making reference to Isaiah. And he talks about the nations that were far off and that have been brought near. But what's been the basis of that? Has it been the Gentiles finally just decided to wake up one day, they were enlightened under this tree and decided to follow after Christ? No. It's Jesus. Verse 14. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Now, what does this mean? Is this saying that the commandments of God are bad and they needed to be torn down? Are we saying that this is that we're on some sort of trajectory of redemption and more and more of God's commandments won't apply? No, that's not what it's saying here. The commandments that God had set up in the sacrificial system, the ways that he had had his Jewish people to live, not eating certain things, not wearing certain things, not working on certain days, all of these things were part of the covenant that God had made to make these people distinctive. Because God had promised that the Messiah would be coming through this Jewish people, and that they were to keep themselves in this line and were to be different to the rest of the world. And what this was supposed to be is that the nations would then come to Israel to say, tell us who God is. Because when they were obedient to the commandments, man, it was, it was a good life to live in Israel. When they were under wise kings, 
silver became just as common as the dirt on the ground. It's it's really the opposite of inflation. They experienced a bumper crop every sixth year, so they were able to let their fields and their farmers rest. Life was amazing under God's rulership. And this is supposed to be a light to the rest of the nations to draw them in and say, there's something special happening here. And of course, it would be the preparation for the ultimate light that was to come into the world of Jesus Christ himself. The sacrificial system in the Mosaic law is not plan A that didn't work out, so we had plan B for Jesus. This was supposed to be to prompt us, to show us, hey, you all are sinners. You need to sacrifice lambs over and over and over and over and over again to cover your sins until Christ comes. Now there's no more need for a sacrifice anymore. Your sins are covered. We don't need the sacrificial system anymore. Thousands of years of offering sacrifices, no longer necessary because of Jesus. That makes an impact. That tells you something about how powerful and how necessary and how needed Jesus was. That's what these commandments were supposed to point to. But instead, they became an occasion for pride, keeping the Gentiles out. Remember, in um, the Passion Week of Jesus, when he comes in during Passover, and there's thousands of animals all over the place where the Gentiles were supposed to be, pushing out these nations. That's not what it was supposed to be. But now, in Christ, these things of separation are no longer necessary. Now, the covenant is not based on lineage. It's now based in Jesus. And now he's done away with these commandments expressed in ordinances, these these ceremonial parts of the Mosaic law. Now, it doesn't matter whether you wear cotton and polyester together. Now, it doesn't matter if you eat shrimp or bacon. Because those are no longer the dividing points. Now it's faith in Christ, as it always was meant to be. Now it's a life of holiness. That's what looks different to the world. And he's bringing these two people together. Here in verse 15, he has broken down these walls of hostility so that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, making peace. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. That's something we shouldn't miss. Is that it's not just my relationship with Christ, it's just me and Jesus. But I can still lash out at everybody else that's to the side of me. That's not what we see here in the gospel. He's created a new person, one man. Can you imagine if your hand turned against you? It would be disastrous. But when we fight against one another, when we fight against our fellow believers or against the, the wider humanity, we're fighting against our... We're, we're doing damage to ourselves. We're supposed to be a united people that's towards God. And we can't miss that. Things like racism have no part in the church. Things of judging other people just for superficial characteristics is not something that this passage would allow. But neither should we get stuck on the horizontal dimension. Say, it's like, okay, well, as long as everybody gets along, then it's all fine, whether you're united to Christ or not. That's the other mistake that we make. 
We need to be united together. But it needs to be united in Christ. There has to be this basis. It can't just be skin color or political party affiliations. It has to be faith in Christ. Because that's the thing that's going to kill hostility. And we, as Gentiles in this passage, for those most of us here don't have any Jewish heritage, we should be extra grateful for this passage. We've been brought near. We were the outcasts. We were the ones on the outside of the gate looking in. And now we've been brought in. And we should call the same to those that are outside, to be brought in. But to be reconciled to Christ. That's going to mean looking different. That's going to mean behaving differently. It's going to mean transformation. That's what it means to be in Christ. It also means peace. That's what we see here in verse 17. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. This is peace is something we all long for, isn't it? In a world in which is constantly at war. To be absent of conflict, no matter where you are, where you've come from, to be brought near and to have peace with God. This is a beautiful, beautiful thing. To be brought together as one. This is a massive move in redemptive history. Because it's always been one or the other. But now, in fulfillment of all of these promises, he has been brought back together. So why is he doing this? What is the point of God's bringing us together. Well, we see that in verses 18 and following. I'll read that again so we can keep this in our minds. Verse 18, it says, For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens in the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now we're moving into this second point, is that true unity is for God's purposes. Here, those that have been outside have been brought in. You can imagine if you're having, you've entered into the UK on a work release and then suddenly you've been adopted into the royal family. That's the level of inclusion that God has brought us all together into. All have access to the Father. And that this has been built on a foundation. Here he talks about the foundation of the apostles and prophets. The prophets that he's referring to here are actually New Testament prophets. If they were Old Testament, they would have been uh, coming first before the apostles. This is also mentioned again in chapter 3, and we'll get there and see that. But here what he's talking about is the gospel that's being proclaimed to the Gentiles. This is the foundation for their inclusion. This is not, uh, these are the culmination of promises long been given. God's heart has always been for that. As we saw in our Old Testament reading of predicting of a time in which all the nations would be coming together and onto the mountain to worship the Lord. But it's not just being this new gospel. It's not just a bunch of radicals that decided to get up and preach something different. But it says that the cornerstone 
is Christ. A cornerstone, you see Paul begins this architectural analogy. A cornerstone would have been a large stone that most of the building's weight would have set on. It also would have been the guiding stone for the rest of the walls. This would have been the primary means of support and the primary means of design. That's what Christ Jesus is forming here. He is this part of this massive foundation for this new structure that's being built together. That's what we see here in verse 21. In whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in, in the Lord. Here Paul's mixing some metaphors. We have this building, but yet it's also this living building that's being growing together. Here he speaks about this each piece that's being brought together. There are no redundant bricks in God's temple. Every one of us that's been brought together has a purpose being here in this kingdom. And he's bringing us together to build this thing. Is he just building yet another institution? To stand alongside everything else, schools and government? No. It's much more profound than that. It's growing into a holy temple, which is a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. If we remember in the Old Testament, they had built a temple. And the reason why that there was a temple there is that God couldn't dwell directly with human beings. Human beings were very, very sinful and still are. So if they wanted to approach God, they needed to come into this place. They needed to be purified before they got into this temple. And even then, they couldn't have direct access to God. You needed a high priest to do that. And only he could do it once a year. And he couldn't go into the presence of God without offering sacrifices for his sin himself. See all this in Hebrews chapter 10. All of these things were walls of separation between him and God. But now, in Christ, we can be made holy. We can be made to be put into the presence of God to the point where God's spirit can dwell within us. And now we're the temple, not this triangular building, but us as people carry the presence of God with us and can carry God to other people and to introduce them to him. That's the point. And we need all of each other to do that. Each of us with our various gifts to be able to bring Christ to a world that needs him. That's what we see here in this passage. And that's the purpose of unity. That's the purpose of bringing together a bunch of people that are very different from one another. From one another. It's to show that God works with a bunch of different people to bring us all together. It's not to make our brochures look good. It's to show that God is, is one that cares about all peoples and wants to see all of them submit to him. So what is this... What difference does this passage make in our day-to-day lives? How is this going to change Monday? Well, let's take a look at it. I have three implications for you I think we can draw from this passage. The first one is to not be satisfied with superficial group characteristics. Skin color is a silly way to group people. Politics is a silly way to group people. So we shouldn't be satisfied with that. We don't be satisfied when people vote the same way that we do. We're satisfied when people know who Jesus is and are transformed by him. That's the basis of unity. And that's the most important thing when it comes to relating to someone else. I remember when I was a small child, I was really into Spider-Man comic books. And I remember I had this large book that had all the various things about Spider-Man. And I was, brought it to my grandfather and was going through all the things that he could do. 
And I remember my grandfather looked at me and he says, well, is Spider-Man a Christian? And I thought that was kind of odd question as an eight-year-old. He says, like, well, I've, I've really asked about the state of his soul. But I think my grandfather was making a point here. Is that I was getting all enamored with the characteristics of this person that didn't really have any basis of what was important. The important thing is, is has this person given their soul to Christ? Whether it's a comic book hero or not. These are the things that make true unity. It's Jesus and nothing else. Nothing else can support the weight of that, of human unity. The second point we've seen is that unity is for God and not our own personal comfort. When we try, a lot of times when we pursue unity, what we're trying to pursue is uniformity. We want to make a place that, we're on that is like us so we can feel comfortable. Instead of saying, well, we want to make this place to be united under the truth. And that's the thing we have to be very careful with. It's very easy to create a place where a large group of people can be comfortable. But the point is to be united to Christ. It's not our own ability to feel like we can be ourselves. It's are we united to Christ? Finally, is I want us to, I, to enjoy this identity with Christ. Revel in an identity that is founded on the fact that you are forgiven and nothing else. Finding community in a football team is going to lead to a lot of disappointment. Unless you root for the tide. Just kidding. There are a lot of bases for unity that will collapse. But one that's based in forgiveness will guide you in the way that you should live. Remembering that you are a forgiven person is going to help you to reach out to other people that are different from you. Remembering that you are forgiven is going to look at these commandments and the ways that the Lord has transformed you and keep you humble rather than feeling exalted over the rest of the world. Remembering that we are a forgiven people and that's what we are keeps us praising our Savior. And that's what this passage, I think, is meant to pull out for us. God has reached out from a very far distance and has brought us near so that we can praise his holy name forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that we've had together in examining this passage. Lord, I ask that you would deepen in our hearts a desire to reach out to those that are around us so that we can win them to Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would place a burden on our heart for someone that we know in our lives this week. And may this be an opportunity for us to reach out and bring them closer to you. Lord, we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.